Hello and welcome to episode 34 of the podcast. I am Christy Scanlon, your host, and this week I speak to ex-rugby union star Leon Lloyd. Leon is a significant figure within the world of rugby. He played professionally for Leicester Tigers and Gloucester and speaks very much around his transition from rugby into the business world. Leon opens up about the struggles of athletes going into new career roles and the importance of developing himself to ensure that he has the correct skills and qualities to pursue in different areas in the future. Now, Leon is a very interesting fella just because he's very much aligned with a business mindset and speaks very much around that transferability within elite sport into the corporate world. Leon has a range of different businesses and events that are helping athletes and those within the world of sport to really focus on their development and their transition away from their career. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. Please rate and review the show by giving it five stars. You can watch the visual podcast on my YouTube channel by searching Christy Scanlon on YouTube. Thank you for listening and see you on the next one. So Leon Lloyd, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be great to be on. Thanks for having me. How did rugby become part of your life? I grew up in inner city Coventry, and I didn't know anything about rugby. If I'm honest, you know, I wanted to play football. Um, the mighty Sky Blues playing with Coventry City, following the footsteps <laughs> the great the great Cyril Regis. You know, that was a dream for me and a lot of my my school friends. But but weirdly, the school I went to, they didn't play football. So I played Sunday league football and um, I enjoyed that. And I went to this school in Coventry County Court and they played rugby. So I was sort of forced to play. And I didn't really want to play. I didn't enjoy it. I didn't like the look of it. It looked a bit too aggressive. And I suppose more importantly, it was taking me away from playing football with, with my mates. And I suppose when you go, to, you go from primary school to senior school, you sort of form new friendship groups. And the new friends that I that formed at the senior school, they played rugby and they played for a Sunday league rugby side. So all of a sudden I found myself slowly moving away from football and having that dream that dream of scoring in the winning goal in the FA Cup final taken away from me uh, to play to pursue a career in rugby at the age of 13 so it sort of happened through you know it wasn't through choice really for my choice it's sort of a, a direction that my school put me in and you know just coincidence really and how did that transition happen then so obviously I presume you had transferable skills from football to rugby was there something that someone saw in you or was it something that you thought actually I'm very good at this and this needs to kind of become a, a bit of an avenue for me to become a professional in i think at that age i think you know when when i was a kid i thought i was good at football but the reality is there are lots of people who i played <laughs> football with who were a lot better than me would argue that i was any good at football what i did know i had i knew i had a i was quick i was i was a quick runner so i can get to the ball quicker than anybody else and then when i got there i probably didn't know what to do with it uh, that that's that's gonna have a limit to the ceiling on how far you can go in football so speed i was blessed with um some decent speed uh, i had a fiercely competitive mindset and attitude I didn't mind the uh, the rough and tumble, if you, if you if you like. I didn't mind the physicalities uh, of stuff, and I was one of those kids at school that always found themselves to get into a bit of trouble. Uh, and yeah, I, I think rugby was a was probably a better fit. I couldn't see it at the time, but it was a better fit for me because it allowed me to use my speed 
use my release of aggression. Um, but I, for me, rugby was about avoidance. You know, people talk about rugby being a massive collision sport, and I look, you know, I'm quite tall, you know, six foot four, but I'm also quite slight, so I'm not really going to run through people, even at that age. So my, I was always trying to think of how can I run around them rather than try and hit compa- uh, contact. So I approached it slightly differently. But yeah, I definitely use my speed as a, uh, as I suppose, a catalyst to get into the new sport. So did you, in that sense, kind of use rugby as a bit of an escapism? You mentioned kind of other factors that might be apparent in your in your kind of upbringing as well, in terms of a tool to to kind of say to yourself, well, this is something that I'm very good at. I've got transferable skills. Well, this, this could potentially lead me into a career that will bring me some extrinsic outcomes. Did you ever think of it by that way? Or was it something that you actually thought, well, I'm actually really enjoying this and this is something that I kind of want to maybe pursue and I'm just trying to think about maybe your mindset because you said mindset then in, the, in in your earlier part and how that kind of become apparent within your your rugby f- profession. Yeah so earlier on uh, if I take you all the way back to then when I was 13 the game wasn't professional so it, okay. wasn't, it wasn't a career choice for people so people who, people who were playing rugby and I, I couldn't tell you because I didn't even watch rugby then so I wouldn't know I can only assume that they had their day jobs and they'd train during the week and the evenings after work and they'd play on a Saturday and then I, when I started playing myself at 13, 14, I used to see rugby special on a Sunday. And they, all those people who played that, that the sport then, they were lawyers or bankers or solicitors or, you know, very middle-class sport. Um, and they, were, they weren't getting paid for it. So when the game turned pro in night, so for me, it was never a career choice. It was never, if I do well, this could be a career path and move me on into the, you know, playing for England and everything else. For me, back then, you know, as a kid, you just want to be with your mates and having fun. And I enjoyed it. We were good. We had a good team. You know, we had a, some really good players who played in our school team and also for the same team on the Sunday. And we just had a laugh. We had good fun. We won more than we lost, which always helps. Uh, made it to a few finals. Uh, and I think that that togetherness, that team, that teamwork piece, I was really drawn into that being part of a team. Um, and I think that's really was the glue that kept us all together. And then when the game turned pro, I think it was, about, I think it was 96 game turned pro in the year before I played for England schoolboys, played for England in the 16s at Twickenham. And that's where I got sort of spotted and sort of invited to go over to a trial to Leicester. So even at that point, the game wasn't professional. It was the year after. So just being invited to Leicester to meet some of the people I've seen on TV, the Dean Richards, the Rory Underwoods, the Martin Johnsons, who, you know, they were, they were heroes in the rugby world. Not necessarily heroes of mine at that time, because I say I was new to the sport, but they certainly grew to be heroes of mine as I started taking it a bit more seriously. You hear a lot of stories about people making it pro especially in football I, I don't know if you come across the Crystal Palace documentaries on Channel 4 recently and you uh, see yeah. the, the pressurised situations of parents and it's interesting to you how you kind of you found out that your ability was very good within this sport and it was kind of like there weren't pressure for you to perform and you mentioned the fact that they weren't professional as well it was a little bit of a, a natural progress to kind of perform within that industry would that make yeah. sense? It, it makes perfect sense my, my parents no one played rugby in my family you know, no one had done that. There's sort of, it was like, there was definitely no pressure from them. There was a, a guy who was a scout, a guy called Pete Lloyd, who had the same surname, but, you know, no relation. He used to drive me over. He came to my house and said, look, Leicester Tigers are interested in uh, having a look at you. Uh, I spoke to my parents. Can I take Leon over to to Leicester on a Tuesday to meet Tony Ruth, the director of rugby, and meet some of the senior players there? And my parents were like, what? What? You know, a random man turning at the, at the front door uh, asking to take our son across. They were like, well, if he wants to go, we can go. And I was like, in, in my head, I'm like, what? Uh, so I, I went over and I say I met um, Tony Russ and I met um, the, the senior players. But for me, it was it was weird because there was no pressure from my parents. You know, they didn't they didn't watch all the games. Only later down the line, 
when my they started to watch, um, to come and watch the games. And you know, when I say when I was playing at Woodland at Walford Road, they took a more of an interest in it then. But again, it was new. It was, it was new to me, but it's also new to them as well. So there's definitely no pressure. But on that football thing, I do quite a lot of work uh, in Premier League academies. So we go in and work with the, the under 12s, under 23s. Again, around that, that bit where you talk about parents, that pressure from parents. But how do yeah. you, how do you, how do you become more? This is where I failed. Like I was always Leon, the rugby player. I was never Leon, the the son, the husband, the dad, the brother. You know, the charity impact, any of those things, I was nearly on the rugby player. So my whole life was wrapped up in that identity. And when that when that was taken away from me, you know, thankfully I played till I was 30. So that was a longer, relatively long career. But when that was taken away, I really struggled with who I was and what I tried to help younger, the next generations coming through, regardless of the sport, is how they understand that they are more than their job. Regardless of how lucky they are and fortunate they are to be in that position, I say lucky, you know, the, the hard work goes into it. So it's not luck, but there was an element of luck definitely in elite sport. But for them to understand that they are more than their job, so give everything you can, but understand that there's a big wide world out there outside of the outside of the sport. You mentioned identity and transition. So for anyone that might be listening or watching this, they might think about that maybe in professional sport, but there might be other disciplines as well where they might have to consider the nature of who they are and their identity and what they what their purpose is within the world. Um, how does one transition successfully? You mentioned that you had to kind of maybe retire at 30 and then you've got to kind of maybe think of maybe career pathways or other avenues that you have to kind of look after and protect. Can you maybe inform us on some of those uh, kind of step-by-step processes to, to kind of help with that within uh, an elite environment or an, another profession that might be relevant? Yeah, so I, I, I learned from it. So I did my undergraduate degree my master's and my phd in transition so it's all around that space and bearing in mind excuse me bearing in mind i left school at 16 to sign pro i did that later in life and i'll still do every day is a school day every day i'm learning uh, and i think transition you know element of self-awareness it's not just in sport it's not in elite sport it's everywhere every we're all transitioning all the time whether you're going from you know junior school primary school to junior school to senior school you know whatever it might be we're all moving everything's changing all around us i suppose having that sense of uh perspective and that identity again if you talk about the elite sport understanding who you are as a person what your values are what's important to you and your your job or your hobby or whatever it might be is an element of that it's not all of that when you understand that and you understand that it's not forever it's a, a guarantee in life especially in sport is one day you're no longer going to be able to play you know that sport regardless what the sport is there are some sports you can play you know, till later in life, but uh, you're never you're not going to be able to continuous perform at a, at a certain level for the rest of your life. So understanding that when you go into it, that's great. But I did, but when you do go to a young age, you're not thinking about the end. When you go into it, you're thinking about you're living the dream. So you're in the moment of it, like this is amazing. How do I become the best athlete I can possibly be? And if you've got some annoying bloke like me uh, coming along telling you, you know, think about the future and anything else, you're like, yeah, I'll think about that in the future. Uh, but the, I think there's so much research out there now which shows those athletes um, who have the ability or the environment to think outside of their sport actually become better athletes as well because it removes the anxieties around what comes next. Or, you know, everyone gets injured. Unless you're very, very lucky, you'll go through a period of being injured in sport. And how do you cope with those injuries if you if your whole life's wrapped around those? Again, you can have you can recover from injuries as well. So the sooner you think about not just transitioning out of sport, just understanding your position in that career and that journey you're going to go on if all things go according to plan then I think you're far better placed 
And that's down to you as an individual, but also your network, your family, your friends, agents, clubs, um, coaches, managers, all those people all play a part in it. It's interesting, actually. I was speaking to a colleague at uh, the place where I work currently around transitions and they kind of mentioned that football's well sport in general is kind of glamorized we're kind of seen as this um super super natural human beings who kind of perform at elite level um and when that transition comes into place there's a, a lack of coping strategies or a lack of awareness on how to cope with those factors i was reading an article the other day around bankruptcy and elite footballers tend to become bankrupt um and that's a common theme throughout uh, a research article that I've looked at. Um, in terms of maybe some of the themes, was there anything, is there anything apparent? You mentioned your work with, with footballers and your research within PhD. Is there anything apparent that kind of happens during that transition? You know, for example, it could be, like I said, bankruptcy, or is there anything about maybe substance use or kind of anything that kind of becomes a kind of key theme within that transition that we need to be aware of more as, as kind of elite performers? Yeah, there are lots of there are lots of traits. Um, you can there's so much research out there now, and we will read about in the newspaper those high profile athletes um, that are newsworthy, and largely they're football players because they are newsworthy. Um, yeah, you hear about this how they've fallen over, and they just keep repeating themselves, repeating the same things, keep over going over and over again. But they're the ones we read about. There are so many other football players or other athletes who are also struggling that just don't get the headlines, and they're still struggling. You no, know, they're just in silence. So. The, the trait, there are common threads that go through. And again, there's lots of different factors around why a career might end. And that could be, you know, you may choose, to, you know, you know, at the end of a contract, you know what, I'm going out at the top of the game. In the ideal world, you're going out in a final, you've scored the winning goal or the winning trial, hit the winning runs, whatever it is, and you're going to retire at the top of the game uh, and your body relatively intact and you can go out and sail off into the sunset. Very few people get to choose when their, their career ends. Uh, usually injury d dictates that or an argument with a coach or deselection or whatever, but a loss of funding. You think of, you know, that, you know, um, Olympic sports where, you, where you, you need required funding. So there's so many different factors which will, uh, can feature into why a career may end. So again, that's how, how do you approach that? So in your head, weirdly, I thought, you know, what, I'm going to think about my retirement when I'm older. I want to, I'll think about it when I get to 30. And just ironically, I retired at 30. Now I'm not saying that's a you know, manifestation, but I think, I kept thinking about if I get to 30, that's a great innings, maybe my debut at 17. If I get to there, then I'll start thinking about uh, transitioning out. But that could have easily happened when I was 28 or 26 or or 20. But the fact I managed to play that long really was uh, was an element of luck, I suppose. But um, understanding that you sometimes are not in control, largely not in control of when that will happen, putting things in place will definitely help. And the traits that I've seen in, in my research and reading different articles and and you know, seeing what we see in the media, yes, there's there's bankruptcy, there's divorce, and sadly there's suicide, there's lots of mental health issues. There's, how do you fill that void of being somebody in the limelight, running out, people asking for your autographs, you know, all those things, all of a sudden one day, the next day, you're still the same person, just that the circumstances have changed and you lose not just your job, but you lose your friendship group, you lose your access to your medical and your physio and all the, usually the physio, is the person you confide in a lot because you, you're injured towards the end of your career, mostly, you know, sweeping statement, but mostly. And then all of a sudden that's cut off and then the team goes on and carries on performing without you. And then you're on the outside looking back thinking, what was it, was it all worth it? You know, now I'm on the outside and the team goes on. And I remember when I finished playing, I was, I was 30 and um, I was playing for Gloucester at the time. Yeah. Uh, three, I remember three o'clock on a Saturday, that's game day, right, for 
since I was 16, three o'clock on a Saturday was game day for me. And all of a sudden I'm walking down, we were living in Cheltenham, I was walking down Cheltenham High Street with my wife and uh, our newborn daughter at three o'clock. And I just didn't want to be there. I didn't want to be there. At three o'clock, I knew where I was supposed to be. I thought I was supposed to be with the boys running out on the pitch. Uh, and then seeing them carry on and continue without me, that was quite tough. Um, I, I didn't want them to lose. Obviously, I didn't want them to lose. But I wanted them to miss me. I wanted them to think, oh, it's not quite the same without Leon. But the reality is, it is the same. It moved, we, I, was, I was such a tiny, tiny piece uh, in that moment. And we all are. And I think that, that led to me having an element of guilt around the play, the past players who have retired from the sport. And I didn't give them a second thought. You know, someone's come in and they're battling with injury. They didn't recover from the injury. Then they've gone, you know, and say, all right, see you, Steve. You know, good luck with the rest of your career. We've got a game at the weekend. See you around. And that was it because we're so focused on the game. And you sort of forget that Steve's going through these challenges. So I had an element of guilt when that happened as well. But again, that's probably what brought me down this path of uh, career transition that I've been on for the past 15 years. How did you cope with that, Leon? Did you, did you seek support? Did you kind of... Yeah, I didn't. Friends. Yeah, I, did, I didn't. I didn't really cope with it well at all, really, Christy, because I was a player who, you know, as I say my background, I come from a very different background to my peers and my team that I played with. Uh, so, so rugby was very different for me. And I also knew I was very, I felt very lucky and privileged to to play the game. I also knew that at one point it was going to end. I was very aware that I had a knee, in, a knee injury early on in my career. And I thought, if I don't get back uh, from this knee injury, I've not got that many you know, attributes and speed is definitely one of them. And if my speed goes, what more, what can I add to the team? So I was very aware that it could end at any point. So I put lots of things in place. So I didn't go to university because I, as I, say, I left school early. So I, I was, I was doing lots of business stuff. I was quite entrepreneurial. So I shadowed the CEO, of the, the club. I worked in the ticket office. I worked with the groundsman. I worked in the accounts department. I worked with hospitality. So I kept doing these little bits around the, um, the club just so I can educate myself on what, what was I good at? for when that time comes. I knew it was coming. Hopefully it's going to be further down the line, but I knew at some point it was coming. So I needed to understand what was I going to do when I stopped playing rugby. So and all my teammates, nobody else was doing it. And they'll look at me like I was some sort of weirdo because they'd be away in Ibiza or Mallorca during the off-season and I'd be, you know, working in the ticket office taking phone calls from disgruntled supporters. Uh, and they'd be thinking, they're thinking I was mad. Um, so I was sort of an anomaly at the time. So when I retired, all the guys, there's this, like this laughing, this laughing thing, this, this ongoing joke about, oh, Lloydy be sorted. When we finish, Lloydy be sorted. I'm only going to get a job with Lloydy. He's got his fingers in lots of pies. So when I did finish, everybody around me assumed I was sorted because I'd put things in place or I'd put things in place or I thought I'd put in place. I'd read all the stats around the divorce, the suicide, the bankruptcies, all those things. I, did, I put things in place to, to mitigate those. So I can, I can then come out and say, guys, by the way, it's hard. It's really hard. And I'm not coping with it quite well because everybody else around me was going, oh, look at Lloydie, he's smashing it. He's doing great things. And on the outside, it's like social media, isn't it? On the outside, you can look like you are flying. But the reality is below the surface, it was tough, man. It was it was, it was, was really tough. For, I'd say two years, it was proper tough. I interviewed a uh, professional football manager who said something similar. He mentioned in different sense, his words were, who motivates the motivator? And it kind of relates to what you just said then. It's kind of, you've got everything in place and you've got this persona and you've got this image that you are in control of your future. But in reality, there is obstacles and other factors that kind of are playing a role in that transition. And it's challenging for you and that mental state and that transitional factor can be a, can be a, a difficulty. And 
it's being aware of that, but also trying to seek support with that. Sometimes that could be limited because of that persona that you have. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. I, th I think I'm a massive advocate of controlling the controllables. That's what elite sport instills in you. You know, control. You can't control the refters. You can't control the weather. You can't control what the supporters do. You can control what you do as a team. Stick to game plans. Everything else. So controlling the controllables is massive. Um, so that's what I did as I approached my transition. I controlled the control or what I thought were the controllables. But equally, you don't know what you don't know. You, you know, I hadn't I hadn't really researched transition before it happened because why would I? Uh, so when it came around, I was sort of blindsided by the thing that really got me the most was not being part of a team. And that, that team element from such a young age, you know, I said at the very beginning about what drawn me, what drew me into rugby was that camaraderie and being with the lads and winning together and losing together, just those shared experiences. And that's like a, a drug that's a really addictive and being part of that, especially when you have the success that I was very fortunate to have had, you know, with Leicester, we won, you know, in my time, we, we won 11, 11 major trophies, you know, European Cups back to back. You know, we were the best, we were the best around in that, that period. And you can't help but create memories and do things together. Uh, we lost as well. I lost in five finals. But even even those losses, we lost together. We were a tight knit group, and you know, very fortunate to play for England. And all those all those things molded together. Their experiences, which are hard to put into words. But so when you finish playing, and then you look on the outside looking in, and you realise, do you know what? I may never experience that same feeling again. And the team will carry on and. It, that that's tough, and that that you can't control that because I wasn't aware of that. So that's 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 the thing that probably took my legs out from under me. Really, you mentioned um, in your last point around uh, your your friends might have been on holidays while Bifo, and you were kind of working in the ticket office and doing all these things to develop yourself. Where do you think that comes from? That kind of mindset was it something that you you kind of read about and learned about during your career or is it something that you thought i need to kind of have something to do just to bring a sense of purpose during this off periods during my kind of career i'm just intrigued on where that comes from and and how that kind of kind of become a persona for you and a, and a trait of yours i think i think fear <laughs> was a major driver for me fear of going back to coventry uh, I was living in Leicester, I'd moved out, I'd moved to Leicester, I'd made that, that trip up the M69 and I was I was in a different space, um, a fear of failure, what what could I do next? I think, I, or even as a kid, I had two or three paper rounds, so I was always active, I was always quite entrepreneurial, so I had paper rounds and I did paper rounds for other people, so I did the ones that were normally in the morning before school, then after school, then ones at the weekend where you have like five million leaflets you've got to go and deliver, and then, then I started signing up and I'd get some of my friends to go and do the paper rounds uh, for me or with me and I'd pay them some of what I was getting paid. So I was, I was sort of managing people at that young age. I, I, I only look back now and I think that I didn't even know what entrepreneur was uh, back then, but certainly that ticks that box of trying to think differently and trying to be busy and be creative. So I've always had that, um, that in my head the whole time. Even when I was playing as a young kid, I set up businesses whilst I was playing, um, concierge businesses that serviced the club and other traveling clubs and looked after the directors when they were going on their way trips. I did all the transport for the directors. And just because, I, again, this fear of what do I do if this stops? If this stops tomorrow, what do I do? Do I have to go move back to Coventry and pick up and from where I left at the age of 16? And that would be a tough place to go back to. So I think that fear was definitely a driver. But again, now that I'm a believer as well, that you're a part of your environment mm. and are surrounded by so many elite performers, like world-class athletes that, 
not just teammates, they were friends. And just by being in, being around them from the age of 16 and just listening to how they talk, how they approach things, how they approach problems, how they solve problems, that rubs off on you. And I was always around that, that can-do attitude and how can you a- approach things differently. So I think that just kept pushing me and pushing me and pushing me. We pushed each other. You know, we, we all pushed each other. We, we continue to push each other now. Now we're not even playing. We see, we catch up with each other. We haven't shared. That's a mindset thing where you can tell when we're together, it's, it's, it's painful how competitive we still are with each other, even though it's not in a rugby field, it's in a different area. A different area. It's interesting how you say that at the beginning you come from like a working class background and then you kind of mentioned that fear. Do you think they kind of align with, I don't want to go back to maybe what my upbringing was like or what my environment was like earlier on in my lifetime? The, the reason I say that is that I was listening to um, uh, the ex-West Bromwich Albion manager, Tony Pulis, and he said that when he left Newport, first thing that he said to himself is that I will never return here and that kind of enabled him to to stay motivated and career driven. I'm from a working class background as well and my transition is from Birmingham to Manchester and I kind of have it in a sense where I think I've got to work hard here because I don't want to maybe go back to to kind of being in an environment where it doesn't suit me now in terms of what I ambitiously want to do. Was that something that kind of aligned maybe on reflection of kind of maybe your upbringing and kind of seeing some of the challenges within working class environments. And you said then a product of your own environment. Is, is that something that you kind of think, I don't want to be going forward or that's something that's going to maybe drag me down in terms of my ambition and what I want to achieve? You mentioned your businesses and your career. I'm just trying to think of where you might have got that fear from. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think um, I, I this may sound arrogant. I don't want it, I don't want it to come across as arrogant. I think I, would, I think I could be successful at whatever I put my mind to um, because... I'm just fiercely driven and committed. But the, the challenge you have is, and I, I'm no different to lots of other people out there, is just finding that thing that you can put your energy and efforts into. Yeah. And I was lucky in a way that rugby chose me or my PE teacher forced me to play rugby and that gave me a focal point. That was my castle on the hill. That was what I was going to put all my efforts into being successful at. If it had been something else, it could have easily been something else. And then it wouldn't have been rugby, it would have been something else. So I, I never really had a career strategy or pathway who does who does at that age you now you go and see a careers advisor at school and it was like oh you can be you know especially the school i went to and sort of the, the, the groups i hung around with your, your options were limited let's let's put it that way uh, and you, you didn't have people saying to you, you could be an entrepreneur you could be a business owner you could be a ceo they weren't even words or job roles i'd even heard of so for me it wasn't a case of i don't want to come back um to commentary to be whatever the job role was so i didn't really know what i wanted to do i just knew that i was I felt like I was destined, if I worked hard, I could control to go to good places, to dinner to better places, but I didn't know what those better places were. And it's only when you take your chance, when you get given it and you're successful, that you sort of realise opportunities start opening for you and you start seeing these other things in a different world. And all of a sudden, you realise hard work, graft, uh, being smart. And I don't mean academically smart, just being uh, sensible. You can actually, they're, they're available to you. When you get a taste of that, again, it's nice to know you, you feel that feels like home. And then you're like, right, what's next? How, how do I keep pushing the boundaries? And before you know it, you just keep pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing. Yeah. And that, I suppose it's a byproduct of, of being in that environment. Interesting. You mentioned your success at Leicester Tigers. You mentioned 11 trophies, five finals. And you mentioned team, and that was important to you and being part of a team. Why do you think that was a successful team? Was there anything that, on reflection, stands out that you think, oh, that was something that was very vital to us or those characteristics were 
integrated within the culture of our team that made us successful. Was there any standouts on on that period? We had some um, super talented individuals that set the standards. They set the um, the benchmark for what was acceptable and what wasn't acceptable. So the the non negotiables, if you like. And I think that was peer led. It wasn't down from the boss. That wasn't from our director of rugby, the coach. It was led by a senior group of, of players, um, of which I wasn't one at the time. You know, I was, I was a youngster coming through, so I I, I looked up to them. And I I fall, fell in line. And if you don't fall in line, such was the environment there. If you didn't fall in line, then you're out. You, you're sort of you're self-selecting. This is how we do things around here uh, as a team. No one person is bigger than the team. And if you think you are, maybe go and be bigger than the team somewhere else. Maybe another environment might be better for you. And that was instilled in every single person that came to the club. Uh, and I think that co- coincided with the game to professionals. I don't think it was like that before. I think Leicester used to be one of those clubs where unless you played 50 times, you weren't allowed to say anything. And certainly when I, you, know, you weren't allowed to have an opinion. I remember when I first got in at the age of 17, I was the youngest by a fair few years. Um, it wasn't until some of my, t- my um, younger teammates came through and joined me that there started to be a nucleus of younger players. And the older players then started to think, oh, actually, they're not stupid. They have got a voice. They they might know something about rugby. They might just uh, and I think that that was a turning point for us and coincided with the professional era as well. I think for me, if I had to put it down on one thing, I'd say accountability would be the the key thing that I remember from those early days. And that was we're accountable for our actions. Now we, we celebrate the wins, but if we make a mistake, it's okay to make mistakes. Um, but you own your mistakes. You don't try and point point fingers and blame somebody else. And and that I've been involved in lots of different environments where that has been the case and they've not gone on to be successful uh, I'm not saying that's the only factor but certainly if that's the foundation for building a t- high performing team then you, you, you get get on in the right direction So a bit of a holistic approach then autonomy given to to players to kind of feedback to the team and feeling valued is that kind of what you were kind of aiming at there? It certainly felt I don't know if the management team back then would be holistic uh, their approach would have been holistic but certainly there's an empowerment piece or they, we were certainly led to believe or certainly felt like we were being empowered. Um, like we had a captain who was Martin Johnson, who was, you know, a superstar. Right? You know, if you know sport, you know Martin Johnson, you know, Leicester's captain, England captain, won the World Cup, won the Lions series, such a great leader. But on the pitch, it wasn't on his shoulders. Right? All the decision-making and all the responsibility wasn't on his shoulders because we also had another tier of super successful leaders as well. And in, in our club, when we were, were absolutely flying, we had lots of mini-captains who looked after different areas of the game. So it was never a case of, oh, Jono's not playing this week. How are we going to win? Who's going to make those tough goals? Because we knew what we were doing as a team because we were allowed to make the decisions and we worked as a team together. And those those big, yes, you need that one person. We don't, we don't like, disagree and commit. We had we used to disagree all the time. And if we ever got to the point where we're at a stalemate, that's the, probably the only time when your captain comes in and says, right, I've heard what everyone's got to say and we're going to go with this direction because I feel X, Y, and Z. Then we go, right, we're in. Everyone commits. You know, we can disagree. We had that ability because we knew we trusted each other. We'd earn each other's trust. That even if we went a, di- a different direction that I thought was the right direction, it was gone. And then I'm, I'm now going in this direction because that's the right direction for the team. And I think that's at the time I only sort of realised that afterwards, looking back, and when I went to a different club and realised, oh, they don't do that here. I think I only realised that after I'd been there. I didn't realise it when I was in it in that environment. So I think that's what made that quite special. So would you say there's a sense of delegation then in terms of leadership? You mentioned the the, the kind of layers of, of people that you could maybe approach uh, in terms of a scenario or maybe a 
uh, a situation maybe off the pitch as well was was there a sense of kind of delegation that enabled that uh, balance to to create success i'm just intrigued on how that that uh, structure was in place to kind of bring you success uh, i don't think less i don't think yeah i don't think delegate i don't think delegation was like okay leon you're going to be in charge of this and neil okay. you're in charge of this I, I think it's more a case of those people who felt confident enough to step forward Okay. Uh, and then deliver something they were listened to and then over a period of time if you continue to do that then all of a sudden you're elevated to that position as opposed to right here's a team you're doing this you're doing that you're doing everything else so that, that in my in my mind that's what delegation is i believe that i think how we evolved into that was you see something and you get the confidence when you want you you felt like you were confident enough to say something in that environment i think we should be doing this way because of this reasons and then you say it a few times and all of a sudden you'll be in a meeting be like so leon what do you think about this in this situation because I've spoken from experience or I'd spoken from something and it worked out. I think when that happens once or twice and other people start having a voice, well, you can't, you can't have everybody speaking, obviously, because it's, it's fast-paced, it's uh, split decisions are made, but certainly in the training and the, the build-up to those environments, those who have worked through and felt, as I say, um, felt comfortable in expressing their views and thoughts, they put their head above the power pit, then all of a sudden they were considered I said use thought leader. We never had thought leaders then. It's more of a, a captain of a position, uh, and then that's how the, the sort of the senior leadership team was evolved. How did, how did you apply maybe some of the lessons that you learned during that uh, environment within everyday life? You mentioned your PhD and your degree and your business. Is there anything that kind of stands out that you've utilised from being around certain leaders? You mentioned uh, Martin Johnson, etc. Is there anything that kind of aligns to maybe the values that you hold today? Yeah, I think I chunk things down. Um, I don't see big challenge. Look, big challenges like my my undergrad was was so difficult because I hadn't studied, I hadn't done any academic work since I left school, and doing it distance learning as well that was tough for me. Um, but look, rather than looking at it two year uh, degree, I just chunked it down like I did a season. Like the season is okay. So this period, what can I do in this? Po- how many? What what assignments I need to get done in the, these three months? And how many? What do I need to score out of my assignment to be able to get the end games? There's one in the league. We know at the end of the end of the season you need seventy two points, so you don't get to a week before the end of the season and realise you've only got sixty five points and you can't win. So you, you just chunk it down so that you can just lock out little parts. So I did that with my all of my study and all of my work. You get the big obviously we've got the big cast on the hill target you're aiming for, but if you just focus on that, you missed all the other stuff. So chunking it down into little parts, which we did as players, little units around like Christmas time or a classic example would be. In the Six Nations, we would lose lots of our best players during the Six Nations time because they'd go off and play for their respective countries. Yeah. So um, squad players would step in. So we're not going to win. You know, I'd be say we're probably not going to win all the games in that period. But if we plan to win more games when we've got our superstars in and then when our emerging players are coming through, if we get 15 points out of 25, that's a win for us because then we're still on track to go through. So we'd be celebrating 15 points during a period of getting 25 and people on the outside would be going what are they doing they've just they've just lost a game and they're celebrating but they didn't understand our strategy to get into the end of the season we had a number that we need to get to the end of the season so we were he- always ahead of the curve because we said right this period we need to get 25 points out of 25 this one is going to be harder if we get 15 out of 25 a 15 plus it means when the players come back we're in a good spot so if we scored 16 or 17 points in that period we were buzzing because it was all part of our, we believed in the mass, the, the overall plan, and it worked by the end of it. But people on the outside who weren't in that that inner circle, if you like, were probably looking at us thinking, what are they doing? Like, this, what, why are they celebrating a loss? We weren't celebrating losses, we were celebrating a short-term plan. And I think that's quite key. And 
certainly how I approach my my life now about looking at the bigger picture. Sometimes it may seem too far away and unrealistic. PhD is an example. The thought of that is just, it's enough to make people not start one. But if you chunk it down and realise these little milestones, little milestones, celebrate the successes along the way, before you know it, you're halfway through, you're on the downhill, and then you are uh, hopefully you're at the finish line. Is there any obstacles during your career that you kind of had to kind of reassess in terms of maybe uh, you kind of outlook towards certain things or it meant maybe mental well-being? Is there anything that kind of stands out for you during that process? You mentioned obviously you transitions from kind of leaving rugby into kind of other avenues, but was there anything during that process of how to deal with pressure or maybe external pressures? You mentioned kind of you celebrated certain uh, milestones in terms of points and media might be onto you in terms of not understanding that, that process was there anything that you kind of had to deal with and anything that kind of maybe challenged the way that you kind of dealt with certain things within your your profile as a as a professional rugby player i think from a playing perspective um i think you might have got the gist of um my brain's always 100 miles per hour anyway doing other stuff outside of my sport and there were, de- there were definitely periods where i had bad form in my career and people look to try and find a reason why you hit bad form. Sometimes just bad form comes in. You can't cons- consistently compete and perform at the top end all the time. And I remember there was a period where my coach blamed my extracurricular activities um, as being the reason why my form dropped. So the fact I was running a business and the fact that I had other things outside because nobody else did it. They were just focused on being the best rugby player they could be. And because I was doing something else and if I had a dip in form, it would be, oh, that's because you've got too much going on. You're not focused. You're not concentrating, which I absolutely disagreed with then at the time and I, I remember putting that across to him which didn't go down too well uh, it never goes down too well when you uh, go back to your coach so I had to find a different way of dealing with that um, because there's nobody else I can go and speak to because nobody else was doing it um, so that that was that was a challenge and I still carried on doing what I was doing I just presented it in a different way uh, so for example I got a I had a PA I had a virtual PA I started off a virtual PA then I had a PA who did my work for me so this club the club and uh, my teammates thought that I sort of parked my business on the side lost now all of a sudden I'm focused on my career but all I'd done was rather than me being the person that answered the calls it went via somebody else and then it came to me uh, <laughs> and this is what this is what proved my point is I didn't change any all I did was put that extra barrier in uh, so the perception was oh now Leon is not focusing on running his business he's focusing on rugby and look there's a there's a change in his form look how well he's playing now the reality was, all I'd done was, I put somebody else in there, so they just didn't see me after those goals. So I sort of moved it, the this deflection, I suppose, magician, sleight of hand. But again, it was that thing, because it hadn't been, we all, everyone was learning, the coaches were learning, I was learning, the game was relatively young. Uh, and I knew I needed something else outside of rugby, because if I focused all of my rugby, if I had a bad game, I was a nightmare. Like, I'd, literally, I'd go home and watch the game. This is how old I am, with the teletext. I'd go home and watch the game and read on teletext of, how the game, if I'd been criticised by the by Sky Sports or whoever it was on the game, then I wouldn't go out because it meant so much to me to play well for the team. And I, would, I wouldn't go and join the lads out on a Saturday night because I felt like I'd let them down because I didn't have anything else in my life outside of rugby. So I needed to have that outlet outside of sports so that I could think, you know, I've had a bad game. That's okay. I've got something else to, uh, no, that's one game is gone. There's another game next week. Uh, I've got something else I can focus on. And when you haven't got something else to focus on, that can be quite dangerous. So that was that was quite challenging. I think it's different now in the game, in this, the, the world of sport. I think other people have got so the the opportunities, and it's more far more accessible to do things outside of sport, which I think is great. 
but still at the same time, you know, I remember last year uh, during the, the kind of pandemic period, there's a lot of pressure on Marcus Rashford. They kind of say well, he's focusing too much on other things in terms of his food bank businesses or he's, he's kind of helping charities, etc. Um, and that's impacting his performance. It's interesting how that is, uh, how that kind of outlook still is apparent today. And, you know, you, you could argue, well, you're never going to win because you, we mentioned earlier around those transitions out of sport and you're kind of needing something out. Well, those need to be set up earlier during your career to kind of enable you to yeah. funnel your energy into that. So it's kind of like a lose-lose situation here. It, it, I kind it of get player, it. Yeah, it, it is a player, but there's, there's so much, thankfully there's so much research now that shows better, better people make better athletes. Yeah. So is, is Marcus Rashford a better person <clears throat> he's doing outside of training? It'd be hard to find someone who would, would argue against that, right? He's a better person. He's, he's actually helping society. He's helping others. He's developing himself. Whether he, whether that's the reason he's doing it or not, he's actually developing himself. Uh, so that ultimately makes him a better football player. It's, the media will get hold of it. There's, there, people always try and find an angle. But if he's playing really, really well, it'll be because he's doing those things outside of sport. Mm -hmm. If he's playing badly or to perform, it'll be because of those things he's doing outside of sport. So you're right, from a player's perspective, an athlete's perspective, it's very difficult to get that balance right. You'll know yourself if you are burning the candle at both ends and sometimes in the middle, and that's where you need a good team around you. But again, I will ne I will always be an advocate uh, and a champion for people who are doing things outside of their sport to enable them to be better athletes within their sport. How did you funnel that, Leon? Leon, was it kind of, um, was it for you, I'm going to prove a point here, or was it, uh, I'm, I'm intrigued on your, your kind of mindset if, for example, if, if media were kind of questioning what you were doing or your coach and you kind of, you had a bit of a backlash with the coach, what was your kind of outlook towards it? Or was it kind of, well, I'm going to prove you wrong that what I'm doing is actually okay and I'm going to actually exert my performance. But what was kind of your kind of way of thinking about it and dealing with that situation? Yeah, so I learned I learned early on never to go head on with a coach. <laughs> I've, I've been on the wrong side of, uh, of a few selections because I went on and questioned the coach in the in the wrong way. So I learned that as a, as a young player. Um, so yes, there's an absolute element of I'm going to prove you wrong, but it wasn't a case of I'm going to prove you wrong and rub your nose in it. So I'll prove you wrong, in fact, that how I, what I talked about with my, my business I had um, by putting a, a PA and putting that barrier in so people thought that I was not doing it. So I never went back around and told them, this might be the, if they're into this now, this would be the first time they've realised that I didn't change anything. So I never went around and said, ah, at the end of the season, ah, I told you you were wrong because... Look how well I played. You said I was playing well then. Everything was exactly the same. I wasn't one of those types of people. I'm not one of those types of people which is back in your face type person. I did it, and inside secretly, I'm thinking, "There you go. I knew, <laughs> I knew I was right." You know, because otherwise, that, that's a that's a battle you're not going to win. Yeah. So being exclusive for me then on this podcast, right? Yeah. <laughs> if they listen to it, my brain will be going up now, thinking, "What? You told us you packed it in." <laughs> so my final question. Leon is what I normally do after uh, at the end of each podcast is I normally get my guests to kind of look back or look forward and I think from what we've kind of discussed we've kind of looked at maybe what your career was like beforehand and maybe that transition and how you dealt with certain things such as mindset and leadership and dealing with coaches etc um what is your plans going forward have you have you got anything that you are ambitious about now you mentioned your businesses and helping athletes and other factors within maybe sport what is the plans going forward and is there something that you kind of want to maybe use your experience with and you mentioned your academic profile as well into something that is kind of benefit people i'm just intrigued on what your plans are 
Yeah, I'm a, I, I feel very lucky. No two days are the same for me. I, I get to meet and work with some amazing individuals, high performance teams. I go in the corporate world. I do deliver keynotes. Again, lessons from sport to business. I wrote a book about, you know, from going from boot room to boardroom, from sport to business. So I go into organizations and talk to them about um, the small little things that talk, they can take a team going from good to great effectively. What what little thing can you do differently or uh, aligned to what in my experience from sport and also the military, because I work with the military as well, of how do you tweak your team, the team dynamic and the culture so that you can achieve sustained success. So I, I do that. I love that. I love going in and speaking and, and working in coaching with those individuals. And I, I help athletes and high performers with their own speaking as well. So they speak and uh, how, how, I, how they um, can share their stories. My real passion piece for me is around the transition piece we've talked about today. And we help athletes and members of the military find their next thing, their, 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 their current thing, the dream job they've got at the moment is whatever they're doing. And when that ends, if they're anything like me, they'll think, well, how am I ever going to uh, recreate that same feeling, that same exhilaration? Uh, and largely, you know, the reason why the stats are so high for drugs and gambling and all those things we talked about before is because people are chasing that, that adrenaline, that feeling they had before. So we help them find a career afterwards, their second career, which is going to be far longer than their first career. So we do that through, um, you know, like our company Centrum Solutions, where we, we help them transition into whatever the next thing is. <clears throat> Excuse me. A lot of the time, they don't know what it is themselves. So we help them explore the thing that they're good at. What are they passionate about? What gets them out of bed in the morning? And if it's not knocking the ball in the back of the net or diving up a high board or throwing a javelin or whatever it might be, what is the next thing that really gets you going? And then we help them for, form a, a pathway, a career pathway, and, and launch into their next career. That, that gets me really excited. Leon, what we'll do is we'll put the link to your book and also the link to your um, business within the description. So if anyone's listening or watching this, they can kind of check that out if that is related oh, to them. Yeah, brilliant. Thank um, you. Finally, where can uh, viewers or listeners find you, Leon? Are you on social media, LinkedIn? Oh, that's I how am, I'm connected. Yeah, yeah I'm, on, I'm on LinkedIn. It's Leon Lloyd. I'm on uh, Twitter, which I'm not as active as well, I probably should be, but I'm super busy. Uh, it's Leon Lloyd 13. Uh, and my website is leonloyd.co.uk and that's got, I suppose, all the things that I'm passionate about are on there at leonloyd.co.uk. Excellent. So we'll put them in the description as well. <laughs> Great stuff. Leon, I just want to say thank you for your time and good luck with your future plans. And it's been an honour speaking to you today. And cheers. Thank you and good luck with the podcast. Thanks for having me on.